Our New Testament reading comes from Matthew 11, 1 through 19. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed are the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? Is it like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates? We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. The word of the Lord. What ancient hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning, and if, if this is your first time with us, we're so glad, we're so grateful that you're here, and uh, we do hope we, we get a chance to connect with you when the service is, is over. And right now, we are moving through the Gospel of, of Matthew, and we find this passage about John the Baptist, and as we'll see, as we talked about in the, the, the children's sermon, this is a passage that very much breaks with and shakes our expectations. So in light of that truth, let us come together before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you've done for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who breaks our expectations. We thank you that you are a God who is more loving, more good, and more gracious than we could ever imagine. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in the power of your Spirit. Amen. So, in the books of, of the Lord of the Rings, there, there's a scene in which Sam the Hobbit has his first encounter with elves. And Sam has long wished, he's long wanted to meet elves, and when he finally does, they actually surprise him. He finds that the world of elves actually breaks his expectations, how it goes much higher than his own and much lower than his own, how it brings together things that, that he assumes must stand apart. And his friend and, and fellow hobbit Frodo asks him, 
Do you like elves still now that you have had a close view? And Sam replies, they seem a bit above my likes and dislikes, so to speak. It don't seem to matter what I think about them. They're quite different from what I expected. So old and young, so joyful and sad, as it were. In elves, Sam finds a combination of traits that we don't readily put together, how they seem both old and young, how they're full of both joy and sorrow. And as Sam hints, their capacity for joy and sorrow is even above his own. Not only are they more joyful and sad than he expected, but their joy reaches higher and their sorrow reaches lower than Sam's delight and sadness. And this is much the experience of the crowd in this passage that encounters Christ and John the Baptist. They encounter John the prophet, about whom Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And yet, what happens when the crowd is asked Frodo's question? Do you like the prophets and the Christ now that you have had a close view? And their answer is very different than Sam's. The crowd says, we don't like the Messiah's joy. However joyful the song that he might play on the flute, we won't dance. And we don't like the prophet's sorrow, however sorrowful the dirge, however deep the lament of this funeral song, we will not mourn. As Christ tells them, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This feasting Messiah is too joyful. This austere prophet is too mournful. Had the elves played the flute, Sam certainly would have danced. Had they played a dirge? Well, Sam would have mourned with sorrow, but not the crowds. Do you like the prophets and the Messiah still now that you have had a close view? No, we don't. They're too joyful and they're too sorrowful for our taste. They're different than we expected, and, and that's the main thing. We don't desire to go so high or so low. They can keep their flutes and their dirges to themselves. And this raises the question of our expectations, the way that they can keep us from recognizing things for what they really are. The greatest of all prophets comes to the people. The Christ himself comes to the people, and because they don't fit the expectations of the crowd, they are simply dismissed. Certainly this can't be a prophet. Certainly this can't be the Christ, the Messiah, the one long promised in the Old Testament. And as we will see, this whole passage is an exercise in mistaken expectations. And surprisingly, it's not just the crowds, but even John himself who will stumble here. When Christ comes, he does so as none of us expect. 
And thank God for that because herein rests the very possibility of Christian salvation. And so I want to look at this text working through it backwards under two headings. Breaking the expectations of the crowd and breaking the expectations of John. Let's start first with breaking the expectations of the crowd. Again, the crowd rejects the high joy and the deep sorrow of both Christ and John the Baptist because their ministries break with what they expect from God. But we have to realize that we too are this crowd that seeks to escape these high highs and low lows. The 19th century German philosopher Ludwig Feuerbach he saw in all religions the tendency of humans simply to project themselves on a bigger scale. He said, our notion of God is really just a bigger version of ourselves. And speaking of God, we are really just speaking about humanity. And all we've done is crafted a big imaginary human, the kind of humans we think humans should be, and we've called that God. Religion, then, he says, is, is nothing more than projecting our deepest wishes, our deepest desires, our deepest expectations on an imaginary thing called God. So then take whatever hodgepodge of notions you would like God to be and, and simply throw that combination up into the heavens. But of course, if this is the case, then there is no real deity, only delusion. And fallen humanity has always done this, and we still do. Our society has built its own temple to this tradition. Again, we too are this crowd. Christian Smith and, and Melinda Lundquist are, are well known for their book Soul Searching and their coining of, of what has come to be the default religion of much American culture, moralistic, therapeutic deism. And they write the following about this quite common faith. They say, God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. We would love a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. We want a God whose main concern is fixing all of our personal and professional problems as we define them, making us feel good about ourselves all the time, and backing off again until something else goes wrong. And please note, I'm not attacking the important professions of counseling, psychology, or psychiatry. I'm attacking, and I believe Smith and Lundquist are attacking, the caricature of these vocations that, that is here projected onto God, a kind of, of, of quick fix form of self-help self that's all about you and your self-esteem. This is the God that we Americans want. But Feuerbach asks us some important questions. Isn't the, the perfect fit between this God and your wishful thinking alarming? Haven't you simply projected your desire for a divine butler and cosmic therapist into the heavens? Isn't it disconcerting that this God obeys and forms himself to every one of your expectations? Isn't it a bit fishy that the God you expect is exactly the God 
you found? And to all of these questions, we have to answer yes. And one important implication of this view is that we are the ones who, divine, who define and diagnose our problems. However, when we diagnose our problems, when we set the terms and agendas on which God should act in our lives, then we will make our lives quite small. For instance, there's a $400 billion plan to build a city called Telosa somewhere in the American Southwest. It's supposed to be a, a blueprint for a new form of, of civic life, a kind of beacon of hope to a lost world. And the name of the city actually comes from the Greek word telos. And to speak of something's telos is to speak of its full fruition, its perfection, its consummation. To speak of the telos of an acorn is to speak of an oak tree. And so here the idea is if we can just tweak a few parts of civic life, then finally we will have the conditions perfect for human flourishing, for humanity to reach its telos. But if telosa is all that we need to reach our telos, then we are actually quite small creatures. For instance, here's a list of some of telosa's aims. A 15-minute commute for all citizens, shared decision-making for budgets and city planning, and a sustainable use of resources. And all of these things are good things. For instance, we should strive for sustainability in the use of our resources. But is this the very best that we can do? This is good, but does it actually meet the deepest desires of our heart? If telosa is our actual telos, then our telos is not all that spectacular. If telosa is our telos, then we are indeed quite small creatures. But why would we want to do this to ourselves and, and make ourselves smaller? Well, because it helps us to avoid the dirge of John. What does John tell the crowds? Matthew records one of his sermons as follows. He tells the people, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? but bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And we ask, why talk about destruction and, and judgment when instead we can just tweak a few parts of our life? Do we really need the dirge of John? Do we really need this message of wrath? And lament? Isn't all we need a, a better commute, better planning, a, a better use of resources? Isn't all we need a, a few self-help methods, a, a little boost to our self-esteem, an affirmation that we are on the right path, whatever that path is, and regardless of what anybody might say about that path that we're on? And of course, this is the very kind of thing that a divine butler and a cosmic therapist are great at. And that means that we're really not all that bad. While John is saying we must turn our whole life around and actually repent for what we've done, the divine butler already assumes I'm in a good place. The cosmic therapist owes it to me to help me meet my goals and ambitions however I might define them. 
God, you exist to give me a great romance, which I will define on my own terms. God, you exist to give me professional success, which I will define on my own terms. God, you exist to give me my best life right now, which I will define on my own terms. Yes, God, you made the whole universe and everything in it and sustain it every single second. But still, let me tell you, God, what you need to do for me. God, you exist to meet my expectations of who you are. And so ultimately, God, I'm the one who tells you who you are. You, God, do not tell me who I am. But again, there's two problems here. The first is the problem diagnosed by Feuerbach. We've just made God according to our own expectations. We projected our wishes onto the heavens and made a God who simply exists to do our bidding and to affirm what we're already doing. Feuerbach himself was an atheist, but he was right to reject this God. Certainly, God being God would break our expectations. If God is truly God, then wouldn't we expect him to tell us things that confront us, that, that contradict us, that keep us from certain paths? For instance, no parent, I hope, would, would come along their four-year-old child and simply affirm them and help them in all the things that they're already doing. If they did, the house would be burned down in an hour. But do we think that there's a bigger difference between child and parent than between the human and the infinite God? If parents daily have to shatter the expectations of their children, would we not expect the infinitely wise and good and just and gracious God to shatter our expectations? And really, this is just a matter of saying, are we willing to let God be God? Are we willing to let God define who God is? Or must we force him into what we expect of God? And if we do this, we will always have Feuerbach's imaginary God. If you don't have a God who can break your expectations, who can confront you, who can tell you things you would rather not hear, then Feuerbach tells us you don't really have God. You just have a really, really, really big imaginary friend. But it's not only that this makes God small when we make God into our own image other than the other way around. We also make ourselves small. Philosopher Charles Taylor is helpful on this point. He, he points out that if all we need is a tweak in order to flourish, then yes, it seems like we are affirming the dignity of humanity. We're saying we're not really all that bad. But Taylor points out that there's another side to this. If our current life isn't all that bad, if we don't need the overhaul of John's dirge, then life as it now is, well, that's about as good as it can get. If all we need is a tweak, then the best that we can hope for really is Telosa. As Taylor points out, yes, Christianity does say that we are much worse than we would diagnose our problems to be, but if that's the case, then the way things are now is a far cry from the way that things should be. If the world as we now know it is deeply flawed, then our telos is actually much, much greater than this. 
It's much greater than something like Telosa could ever imagine. And so in the end, Taylor argues that it is a deeper affront, a deeper offense to human dignity to say that all we need is a tweak. And to put it in Jesus's words in this passage, only if we mourn to the dirge can we dance to the flute. It's only when we engage the deep sorrow of the dirge that we can embrace the great joy of the flute. It's only when we learn to be like the elves that we know that we have encountered the one true God and not just a projection of our wishes and expectations. The irony is that even the most pessimistic of man-made philosophies are not pessimistic enough. For instance, literary theorist Terry Eagleton, he, he writes of Sigmund Freud's prognosis of humanity. He says, Freud's estimate of, of human capacities is on the whole pessimistic. We are dominated by a desire for gratification and an aversion to anything which might frustrate it. But what's John's prognosis? No, our deepest problem is not a desire for immediate gratification, but the fact that we long to be God in God's place. A tendency that we see evidenced by all the ways that we use our expectations to tell God who he should be. Freud was actually not pessimistic enough. But Telosa, with its optimism about what we need to make things right, well, it actually pales in comparison to the future that God has promised those in Christ. And so the Christian world, if we can say this, is like the world of the elves. It goes much higher and lower than any man-made outlook could ever take you. It sees life as a great symphony where the most joyful melody is mixed with the deepest mourning of the dirge. Christianity is both more pessimistic and optimistic than any other song we might sing. And so, oh sleeper, awake to the heights and depths of the world in which we actually live. And this brings us to our second and final point, breaking the expectations of John. Because surprisingly, the crowd, and that's all of us, are not alone in our mistaken expectations. We find that John's own faith is shaken and he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Even this great prophet of God finds his expectations broken in response to Christ. And we can understand John's confusion. Think about, think about what Jesus tells us about John. Jesus says, truly I say to you, among those born of woman, women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Christ tells us that no mere human has lived a better life than John. John literally has lived the most righteous life of any mere human. That is a huge commendation. But what has happened to John? Despite his deepest commitment to righteousness and justice, here he is put in jail because of the cruel and unrighteous ruler Herod. As much as was possible for John, he did everything right and everything has turned out wrong. And things will get worse. John will be killed in prison. 
And so John wonders, wait, wasn't the prophecy that I was given by God, which I declared to the people, a prophecy against all of the evil and unrighteousness and injustice in the world? Wasn't my prophecy that spoke of how this Messiah would come, the one who is to come, that he would come and set all things right? But here I am, suffering wrong and injustice, and Jesus doesn't seem to be doing a thing about it. John is asking Jesus, where is that judgment that you were supposed to bring? Where is the judgment that God proclaimed through me about you? And how is it that Jesus responds? Well, he says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. How are we to understand this response? Well, theologian Peter Lightheart, he, he makes an important observation here. He points out that, that Jesus here is quoting from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. But Jesus does so in a selective way, emphasizing one aspect of his ministry over the other. Lightheart writes, Jesus cites those portions of Isaiah that describe his ministry of healing and teaching, but he leaves out portions of the same prophecies that talk about the judgment that the Lord is to bring on the wicked. Lightheart points out that Jesus intentionally omits Isaiah 35:4. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. He also leaves out Isaiah 61, 2, which tells of the servant of the Lord who will proclaim the day of the vengeance of our God. And so what is Jesus doing here? Is he showing us that judgment is simply an Old Testament concept that he and the New Testament leave behind? No, not at all. And in fact, he is saying exactly the opposite because Jesus does go on to pronounce judgment. And he does so on the most unlikely of persons, on John himself. Yes, John is the most righteous, mere human that ever lived. But then Jesus continues, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Again, of any mere human that ever lived, John more fully loved God and neighbor. Yet Christ tells us that the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John in all of his efforts. What does this mean? Well, it tells us that not even John, with all of his righteous strivings, is himself free from judgment. John, in some sense, must have believed that he was good enough to escape this judgment. He believed that the judgment and destruction that he prophesied would not fall on him. He believed that the judgment was for the crowd, not for him. Yet by John, in all of his own striving, he is not even worthy to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. By his striving, he has no place in the kingdom of heaven. By his own striving, he too is worthy of the judgment that he proclaimed upon the crowds. The crowds didn't want Christ's joyful flute or John's mournful dirge. 
But ironically, not even John understood how deep and low this dirge goes. John wants a God of judgment, but not a God of perfect judgment. While John is calling for God's judgment, he actually has much too low a view of this judgment. And so why is it that Christ omits and takes out sections of Isaiah that speak of judgment? Well, it's not because God is a God without judgment, but because God's judgment is greater than we could ever imagine. Consider the biblical ethic of justice. Consider what God demands of each and every human being that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. We're called to love God wholly and fully and completely all the time. We're called to love every human being in the very same way we love ourselves. To meet the needs of others with the very same love and intensity and passion and energy that we meet our own needs and to do so every single second. And you might say, this is just a ridiculous view of things. There has to be a place for just being good enough. And I understand this way of thinking. But to think this, please admit that you are rejecting an absolute and uncompromising notion of justice. If we can speak of being good enough, then we don't have to speak of being completely just. And if that's the case, then yes, telosa is all that we need. This, I believe, is the mistake that John is making. He thinks that he has been good enough. But if he is good enough and righteous enough and loving enough and just enough, then God's standard of justice is less than perfect. But if God's standard is perfect, then John himself falls under that very same judgment that he himself proclaimed to the crowd. And so then, what are we to do? Well, first and foremost, we need to change our expectations. The reason we are in this mess, which stretches all the way back to Eden, is that we have decided who and what God should be. We have made ourselves God in God's place. We formed God into the image of the divine butler and the cosmic therapist. Or like John, we have made God our own personal prosecutor. We've made a God who calls everyone else to account except me, except my group. And so, in a million different ways, we have made our own God and put ourselves in the place of God. But how does God respond? Well, God does exactly the opposite. We have put ourselves in God's place, but God has put himself in our place. And few people have put this dynamic better than John Stott. He writes, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Why does Jesus omit these statements of judgment? because he will take these judgments upon himself. So great is God's ethic of justice that not even John can escape God's judgment. But Christ on the cross bears this for John. 
In Christ, God the Son became human and fulfilled this perfect ethic of justice at every turn. And so Christ, the God-man, Christ, no mere human, Christ, the only one who lived a life that actually escaped this judgment. But Christ comes and takes this judgment upon himself. He took what we deserve. Because all of us have put ourselves in God's place, God comes to us and puts himself in our place. And for those who put their faith in Christ, this is a judgment that Christ has borne for us. So then, does this mean that Christ will never come in judgment? No. One problem is that John didn't realize that Jesus is coming twice. Christ came once before, and he will come again on his first coming. He offered restoration and healing and forgiveness and reconciliation. Christ offers this for free. Simply receive him by faith. Again, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Think about that. Let that sink in. The one with faith in Christ possesses something better than the righteousness of John. You have the very righteousness of Christ himself, because John, too, is worthy of God's wrath. But do we really believe this, that faith in Christ is all that we need, and that faith alone will reconcile us to God? Please realize that you will never strive harder than John the Baptist, and even his striving pales in comparison to the righteousness of faith. By your own efforts, you will not be as righteous as John the Baptist. But that righteousness wasn't enough anyways. If it were, then there would be no need for Christ's first coming. If it were, then John would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But by his own righteousness, John is not even least in the kingdom of heaven. But one day, Christ will come again. And on that day, he will come in judgment. He will come and set the whole world right, and every evil act ever committed will be avenged and punished. On that day, perfect justice will be realized. On that day, Christ himself will judge each of us for all that we have done, and either you yourself will bear the eternal punishment of that most perfect justice, or Christ himself in all of his might will gently stoop down to you as you come before his throne and assure you personally that he himself has borne your punishment already upon the cross. He will say this to John, and if we have faith in him, he will say this to us. And this will be a joy much greater than anything envisioned by Telosa. This is a God we would never expect. And thank God for that. This is a God who will take us lower than we would expect, showing us the depth and depravity of our sin and the judgment we deserve. But this is also a God who takes us higher than we would ever expect. One who promises us a fully restored creation with no corruption and death and a fully restored heart by which we love and commune with God and neighbor perfectly. Imagine going to the doctor and, and knowing that you don't feel right, knowing that something is wrong. 
But after every possible test, the doctor tells you that, that there's, you're fine and nothing's wrong. And what that would mean is that this is about as good as it gets. But imagine another scenario. This time the doctor finds that you have a life-threatening disease that is corrupting your health in a million different ways. But this is a disease that can be cured with 100% success. Yes, what you're feeling is not how humans are supposed to feel. There's something wrong, but there's a wholly effective indefinite cure. You can and will be made healthy. Think about which scenario you would prefer. This diagnosis is the dirge, and the surefire cure is the flu. This diagnosis is our sin and our judgment, and the cure is Christ. And again, perhaps you find the idea of sin and judgment demeaning to human dignity. But if this is all there is, if this is the best that we can hope for, if this is us in perfect health, then I would argue that that is a much greater offense to human dignity. If this is all there is and all that we can hope for, then we are small creatures indeed. But you are much too dignified a being to be satisfied by anything less than the joy of God's promise. The full song of gladness and happiness and rapture that he plays on his flute for us. So let me close by asking you some questions. Have you and do you mourn deeply for your sin? Do you mourn more deeply for your sin now than you did a year ago? Does your sin make you more humble now than when you first came to Christ? If not, then you, like the crowd, are rejecting the dirge. And I ask you, do you long for the song of Christ's flute to pierce the sky, to usher in his second coming when everything will be made right? Do you fervently hope for this? Do you ever think to yourself, yes, this could very well be the day that Christ returns? Is this actually an operative reality in your life? If not, you, like the crowd, are closing your ears to the flute. At present, Christians, like the elves, must be both the most sorrowful and the most joyful of people. But one day, our sorrow will be no more, and all will be joy. Be grateful for all that you have in this life and steward it well. But remember, as Teresa of Avila tells us, when one day we look back, on this life from the vantage point of pure, perfect joy. It will seem like one bad night at a bad hotel. And this should motivate us to serve and to love our neighbor. This life is brief and the things of this world will quickly pass through our fingers. So take this quick breath that we call life and commit it to loving your neighbor and not to a comfort that will always and ever escape you in this present world. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you have sent us Christ to show us the depth of sin, but the joy of salvation. Keep these truths firm in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray.